Amen. Hear now God's word. Be reading just one verse from Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. These are the words of God. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word is strong, potent medicine for this soul. Take it, and by your Holy Spirit, place it deep in us that our minds, our wills, our emotions might be disciplined by this word, that we would be transformed by this word and made more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the Hatchers had a plan to be gone this weekend, and so we had asked a a, a Greyfriars student. Greyfriars is a a, a ministerial college that is connected to our denomination. It's out in in Moscow. Both Tyler and I and Jerry all attended it. Um, And we had uh, Josh Edwin was going to come and be preaching, um, but he let us know yesterday that his entire family, he's got, I think, three kids, they all have the stomach flu. We said, don't come. (laughs) So it turns out we weren't going out of town. Things, plans changed, and uh, I'm here with you. So you're stuck with me this morning. Years ago, I did a, a series, just about five, six years ago, I did a series uh, called The Strong Gospel of Our Lord Jesus Christ. And the theme of those sermons was, was answering what I believe to be um, a problem that we all have. And the, and the problem is that we don't believe the gospel. Christians don't believe the gospel. <laughs> In, in all kinds of ways we don't. And we went through and, and talked about the power of God in the message preached, the power of the Spirit in transforming lives, the ability to, to, to uh, uh, walk in all aspects of life and be changed and transformed and moved by God to be a different kind of person, and the promises of the gospel that was going to flourish not just in individual lives, but over all nations, transforming the world because Jesus came and bought the world with his blood. Um, I chose one sermon out of that series to, to turn back to today, and, it's, and it has to do with the fact that, that we don't believe the gospel with regard to our own personal sanctification. You don't believe the gospel in terms of your own personal sanctification. So often, we give in to what we call besetting sins, those, those habits that are ours, those things that we now call maybe our characteristics, our personalities, just the way that we live. We have our own ruts. We have our own gutters that we fall into, and we think that there's no way that God is going to change us. And I would charge you from the Word of God that, in fact, that is a lie, and it's a lie from the pit, and you need to repent of that lie. And and by repenting of that lie, you will avail yourself of the strength of the gospel to be new, to be transformed. And it's this one verse that I'm going to work from um, uh, to begin with that Paul writes to the Philippians um, as he's in prison. I, I always love to mention that, the prison epistles. Um, Paul is in prison. He is expecting that he might die. He might be killed and killed for only one reason. He will not give up saying that Jesus Christ is Lord. He won't. Even if, even if the Jews are, are going to work together with the Romans just as they did with, with Jesus and have him killed. Uh, he says later in this passage, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm not worried about this. And from prison, he writes to the Philippians, telling them that they, um, that they are, that he, he loves this congregation, and he, and he reminds them of the optimistic hope he has for them, for individual Christians like you and me, and for the church. In the midst of this, he says, Um, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it 
until the day of Jesus Christ. That can be applied to a church, that can be applied to a generation, that can be applied to a nation, and it can be applied to you, to you. There's a doctrine called the perseverance of the saints. Um, it's the fifth of the five uh, points of Calvinism, TULIP, uh, which is re really a, a crude summary uh, of, of Calvinism. Many people think that Calvin wrote TULIP, the five points. He, he was long gone and dead um, for generations before, before this, this, these doctrines were put together in this way. Nevertheless, it has come to be known as the five points of Calvinism. Um, and so you have TULIP, you have total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. And these are debated doctrines. Um, people have a hard time with all of them, but almost always, um, everybody likes the perseverance of the saints, or the once saved, always saved doctrine. And so for the most part, we are all whiskey Calvinists because we at least embrace one-fifth of the tulip. <laughs> so there is this doctrine called the perseverance of the saints, which really is, is not named correctly. It should be understood as the preservation of the saints, or rather the perseverance of God. R rather, the, rather, the emphasis should not be placed on you, I'm going to persevere, but rather, God is going to persevere. He is going to preserve. He is going to accomplish and finish the work that he began. You see, too, far too often, um, we, we um, can-do Christians, we can-do Americans, think that what we've done is we've, we've signed up for a particular way of living, and we're going to follow Jesus, and we're going to do the best job that we can. And every once in a while, he kind of encourages us with a nice message or a sweet little passage from Scripture, or, or maybe um, a, a, a supercharged sermon that just really grabs you. Uh, and a, a worship service that just t transforms you from the inside out. A, a, a retreat that you go to and you, you leave and you're never going to be different anymore. And then Monday comes and Tuesday comes and there you are again. Trouncing through your sins. Trouncing through your struggles. Trouncing through your, um, yourself. Well, what is this doctrine of the preservation of the saints then? Or the perseverance of God? Let's say two, set, two, two statements to you, and you'll believe the first one. Without the efficacious work of God through Jesus Christ, there is not a chance in the world that you could be saved. Amen? Yeah, that's, that's what it means to be a Christian. Saved by grace through faith. Without the efficacious work of God through Jesus Christ, there is not a chance in the world you could be saved. We believe that. Next statement. Without the efficacious work of God through Jesus Christ, there's not a chance in the world you will be perfected in holiness. That, that your salvation will end in your perfect glorification, and it will be because of God's efficacious work. Now, that messes with us, because we spend our lives thinking that we must now do. It's... it's we, we must now do. We, we, we've, we've said we're going to follow Jesus. Aren't there things that now we must do? But let's explore this for a little bit together. The, 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 um, the efficacious work of God is the kind of work by which you were saved. You didn't have anything to do with it. And his efficacious work is the way by which you will be perfected all the way to perfect holiness. And the efficacious work of God is exactly where our confidence is to rest. Our confidence is never to rest on ourselves. Our confidence always is to rest on God. But who do you think he is? 
Has he given you an, uh, an ounce or a gallon or a ton of faith and grace, moved you in a particular direction? But we, we act like deists as Christians. We think that he's given us all of this and now, now he's watching and he's keeping tabs on how you're doing with that grace, how you're doing with that obedience thing over there. He's watching. He's, he might even be rooting for you. But is he doing for you? This is the power of the gospel in gospel promises. So this text, this one little text that Paul writes is to encourage all the saints at the church of Philippi, all of them. He doesn't say just some of them. He writes in verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, all of them who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. So he wants to encourage all the saints for whom Paul thanks God always and does so with great joy, great a great charge to all pastors and elders to give thanks for all of the members of their congregation and to do so with great joy. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. And then being confident, he writes, of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What that means is that Paul is giving thanks for, for, for the Philippian church and for each and every member that comes to his mind, and he's making requests for them. He's made, he has received some requests. He knows, he knows their situation, and he's making requests before God, he says, with all joy, um, and for, the, all, for their fellowship, their, their partnership with him in the gospel, and he's doing so confident that God's going to answer. He's confident that God's going to change. He's confident God is going to do good things, answering his prayers and bringing forth the promises of the gospel in the work of the saints. Now, you might think, as he writes, that, um, that, and you might think here, you might think among, among people here in the church, you might think that there are some who are basically good, or at least much better than others, at least much better than you. You might look down the aisle and you think, you know, I'm, I am a follower of Christ, but I'm not at all like her. I, I'll never measure up to him. That, that, that's what we could tend to think, right? So you, you might think that some are better than others, but Paul knows that every believer needs the grace of God, and he needs the grace of God from beginning to end in order to complete the race. It's grace upon grace all the way to the end. Elsewhere, he condemned the idea that Christians would add, the work of the, add to the work of the Spirit in order to do our part in salvation. This is what he gets, he gets very angry in his letter to the Galatians. And the anger stems from the fact that they are now going to um, finish their salvation with their good works. Galatians 3.3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course not. Uh, Meganoita, may it never be. Uh, not, not a chance. Or Galatians 5, 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So he gives a key here as to how we're gonna stop fulfilling the lust of our flesh. He says, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. He says there is going to be this ongoing conflict. You should expect it. That's part of the work of sanctification. 
And he says, now here's what you do. Walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There is a way out, he says. There is a way out. In another letter in Romans, he'll say that there's no temptation, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who also will provide a way out. God is not perplexed up in heaven with a single one of your temptations, with a single one of your problems. He's not, he's not going, I don't know what we're going to do about this one. Um, you know, uh, you, can go, you can go to a doctor, you can go to um, a medical expert, you have a, a certain kind of uh, diagnosis or you don't even have a diagnosis, you're trying to figure out what in the world is wrong, and you can go to some of the, the greatest medical experts in the world, and they might say, we, have, we just have no idea. We just have no idea. God's never in that situation. Not with any one of your problems. Not with any one of your situations. Not with any one of your temptations. He has no problems. But many Christians try too hard to be good. Did you ever think a pastor would say that? Many Christians try too hard to be good. They try too hard to be good by grabbing the wrong tools. They try to be too good by grabbing the wrong tools. Their own abilities, their own trusting in themselves, holding themselves accountable to themselves. Spurgeon writes so well, he says, if my finger were on the golden latch of paradise and my foot were on its jasper threshold, I should not take the last step so as to enter heaven unless the grace which brought me, which brought me so far should enable me fully and fairly to complete, complete my pilgrimage. He says, if, if if I, if I only had one more step, just one more step, and I'm in the, through the pearly gates. I'm in heaven. I'm perfected. And I just had one step left. I just had to turn the handle. But if it was up to me to have to turn the handle, everything else has been given to me. But if, and, and God says, all I want you to do, just turn the handle. Just, you're going to have to do that part on your own. He said, fail. If it wasn't the grace of God, I would fail in every step and act of obedience. When, and, and, and we say in our minds, I don't know if that's really true. I, I think I can do a lot of good things. I can think I can do a lot of good things um, without the grace of God. Well, now you sound, first of all, you sound like an unbeliever. And, and, and you, don't, you don't understand how fallen we are in all of our motives and all the things that we do and how glorious and holy and powerful and personal God is to actually direct even unbelievers in doing good things. This is the work of God all around us. It's all of grace. You are saved by grace through faith, and you will be sanctified by grace through faith, plus nothing. Being born again, brought from darkness to light, delivered from the bondage of our fallen nature and dead heart, this is all a miracle. No one but God can do it. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can an Ethiopian change his skin or a leopard its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. Jeremiah's point is, um, there, you, you are, you're an evildoer by nature. You are selfish by nature. You are a God denier by nature. And you can't change yourself any more than a leopard could change his spots. But God, but God. I, I don't get why some people say that there are, are, there's no such thing as miracles today. Every single one of you who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ is a miracle. That's, that's the miraculous work of God. That does not happen naturally. 
That happens miraculously. That is the work of God. Conversion is a work comparable to the making of a world. So we're called, we are called new creations. And we are, we are placed, we are said, in a new creation. We're a new man. We have a new constitution. We, are, we, we interact now differently by nature with God and with the world around us as well because we've been made new. Only God could fashion the heavens and earth, and only God can create a new nature. If, if my job as a pastor was to educate you so you could understand how to be a better person, then I'd be a lecturer. And I'd be bringing you information, and you'd be taking that information, and then you'd be trying to use that information to build yourself to be a better person. And, and so much of the time, because, again, we're this can-do, practical, materialistic thinking, that's the way you're receiving this word right now. But you are not to receive a sermon that way. We're not to receive the word of God preached that way. We're to receive the word of God much more like food. We're supposed to take it in and let it do its work in us. Let, its work, let it do its work in our hearts and our minds, nourishing and building that new nature and that new way of being human. And we do so by faith and the work of the Holy Spirit as the gospel is brought to you. So Paul does command, though, in, later in, in Philippians chapter 2, he does command us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There it is. Go do. You are to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It is to be on your mind. It's to be on your heart. You, you are to see your sin. Hate it. You are to see your struggles, hate them. You are to see what God has called you to do and know you have much to do, much, much changing that must take place. He commands this, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and he does so because when it comes to your own personal holiness, you are a piece of work. You are, and you know it. But then he says immediately after that, if you have a Bible, turn, turn to Philippians 2 and see this. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, this is what he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, not as much in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With the, the sentence doesn't end there. Verse 13 continues, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because you need to be better. It doesn't say that. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because if you don't, he's going to get you. It doesn't say that. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it's God who's at work in you. <laughs> and if God's at work in you, well, that's a fearful thing sometimes. Yeah, that, that is a fearful thing if God is at work in you. Because you know what he does? He overturns all the rocks, right? He brings light to every corner of darkness. He, he says, no, I'm sorry, you don't get to hold on to that piece of your life. You don't get to hold on to that, that, that attitude that you have. You don't get to ha hold on to that habitual sin. I'm sorry, no, you're mine. I bought you, my son's blood paid for you, it's done, let's go now. That's a fearful thing. You're gonna have to let go of those baubles. You're going to have to let go of those little moments of your own selfish pleasure. You're going to have to let go of, of, uh, of defending yourself and instead deny yourself. And that's a fearful thing. But he says, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It ain't going to be easy. It's not going to be pleasant all the time. Why? Because God's at work in you. 
God's at work in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. And if you think about that for a minute, what is he saying? He says, God's at work in you to will, that is to change your desires, right? And God's at work in you to do, give you the ability. He's gonna change your desires and he's gonna give you the ability. And he isn't working you, so, God said, so Paul writes, work out your salvation, not on your own before God, but work out your salvation because God's at work in you. God always gives what he commands and always commands what he gives. We work out what he works in. Now, if all of this is true, if all of this is true, then you might ask, why are you still trapped in your besetting sin? That attitude that I just always have, that I fall into, that action that I always do, that refusal to do follow a particular command that God has given. What am I to do about this thing that seems to have a grip on me? If the power of God is that good, if his promises are that true, and if they are for me, not just for the better Christians out there, but they're for me, then why do I continue to fall? Why do I continue to fall? Well, the gospel, this strong gospel teaches us, teaches us to see that your sin is not calling into question God's ability to sanctify you. Your sin is not calling into question God's ability to sanctify you. The gospel teaches you to question your claim that your sin is besetting. It's to question your claim, I can't. And instead begin to see within yourself, by the power of God, I won't. And the difference from I can't to I won't is life-changing. When it's I can't, then I am going to struggle and I'm going to argue with God and I'm going to fight and I'm going to give in. When it's I won't, I move so quickly to confession of sin. I won't. And you've told me to. Please forgive me. That is a, that's a terrible and wicked sin. I won't stop thinking those thoughts. I won't stop lusting in that way. I won't stop um, whining and complaining. I won't stop, whatever it is. What are you, what are you doing? You are, you are um, you're calling into question that God is able to do something at this point, when you should be calling into question, when, in your question whether or not the sin is really has such a grip on you as you think. Not only do you need then to repent of the sin, you need to repent of your weak, man-centered gospel. You need to repent of thinking that the gospel is built in such a way that you must do something. God must do something. Now, let's, let's take a look at this in a couple of different ways. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. Here's a question to ask. Who keeps whom? Who keeps whom? Do we keep God or does God keep us? People talk about losing their salvation like losing their car keys. You can lose your salvation. I can't, I can't find it anymore. I've, I've gotten rid of it. But the question is not about losing um, whether or not you can lose God, lose your salvation, lose your status um, of being saved by the grace and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And instead, whether or not God could lose you, could Jesus lose you? 
First Peter chapter one, verse four and five says, well, let's back up to verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1, 4, and 5 are verses to memorize if you are fighting a sin. God is keeping you. God is keeping you by his power through faith. There is a promise that if we have been saved, we are guarded in that salvation by God himself. Our perseverance is based upon God's perseverance, God's protection, and God's power. We'll be looking in John chapter 10 shortly in, as we go through the gospel there, but let's turn to John chapter 10 and see these two verses also in verse 28 and 29 of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 28, these are the words of Jesus. I'll back up to 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Have the car keys in your mind there. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. As though Jesus has you in his hand, the Father has Jesus in his hand. There ain't no way nothing is going to snatch you out. So, but consider the phrase there, eternal life. Either you have received, either what you have received is temporal or eternal If it is temporal, then it could and will come to an end. But Jesus is as clear as day. He says, it is eternal life. And he says, and they shall never perish. If one could lose his salvation, then you could perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand, it says. Like I said, we're, we're asking the wrong question. Rather than asking if I could lose my salvation, we should ask, can God lose us? We cannot lose our salvation because it's not our salvation to lose. You were bought with a price. The price of the blood of Jesus Christ has been paid for you. He bought you and he keeps you. And, then, and Jesus says there, my father is greater than all. And this is so important to see. Greater than all. God is omnipotent. He is greater than all external temptations and all inward corruptions which war against our souls. When it comes to the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, one of the, one of the things that goes through people's mind all the time is about, what about so-and-so, who I know fell away from the faith and that kind of thing? There are answers to that. There's answers that can be made about the truth of apostasy, of apostatizing. But instead, instead of going there right now, what I want you to, I want you to see these verses, and I want to ask, when, when you have that slight doubt that maybe you could be lost, I want you to see the verses. I want you to see Jesus saying them to you. Not, not to your neighbor, not to somebody else, to you. And hear Jesus say, I'm not going to lose you. I'm not. I promise. You, you need to hear Jesus say that to you. And you need to hear him say to you, I'm not going to lose you all the way to the end. I'll be the one that opens that final door. I'll be the one who pushes your foot through the last step. You're going all the way. And you say, well, now what am I supposed to, what do I do with that? Believe. Remember? Remember? How, how did you first get saved? I believed. 
You didn't do anything else, did you? No. It was, it was all grace. It was, it was all faith. Even the faith was a gift. I wasn't believing, and all of a sudden, I believe. The, the word was spoken. God's spirit did something, and I believe. You're to believe this. He's taking you all the way to the end. He who began a good work in you, put your name there. He who began a good work in you will continue it all the way to the day of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. And with that in mind, um, Paul writes great passages of assurance. I'm going to look at one of his, uh, one, of, uh, one of the best ones, Romans chapter 8, the end of Romans chapter 8. Let's go there for a moment. And make this great passage, I hope, even more powerful for you in your fight, in your battle, in your walk. Romans 8.28, verse memorized by all good Christians, especially all good Protestants. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But you shouldn't end there. It is so true, but you shouldn't end there. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. It is as good as done, he says. And that's why he can say that all things work together for good. He doesn't say all things are going to go well for you. Sorry, that's not, that's not the Christian life. But he does say that all things are going to work for your good. In other words, he gives, he gives you this chain of events that are taking place in your life. And he says, when you get to the end of glorification, part of your glory, part of your glorification will be looking back and seeing this day, this struggle, this this wrong turn that you, had, that you made, that you had to repent of, that you had to struggle to repent of again and again. He says, in that day of glorification, you're going to look back with him and you're going to say, I am amazed at how God did good through that. Which, of course, is no excuse for the sin. Because in that glory, you will also say, and but were, but were it for the, the, the gospel, for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, it never would have been for good. It would have been terrible. But instead, I see now how God used it for his glory and for my good. And what Paul, what Paul is suggesting here when he writes it in this day, in our day, in, right now is he's saying, by faith, you can believe that now even though you can't see it now. By faith, you can believe it now even though you can't see it now. And so he goes on. What then shall we say to these things? This is incredible, he says. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What could he ever withhold? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us. The devil can't bring a single, a single accusation against you in the courts of heaven because Jesus stands there as your advocate, as your intercessor, as the one who says, it doesn't matter. My blood has covered it. 
It doesn't matter how many times. It doesn't matter how bad. It doesn't matter how late. It doesn't matter. My blood has covered it. Satan, the accuser, has been put down. And the blood of Jesus Christ covers it all. It goes on. Who shall separate us then from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Then he quotes from the Psalms, As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. In other words, just to summarize it, life doesn't go well. There are lots of hard things that happen to Christians. There are lots of hard things that happen to Christians who are sinning in lots of ways, and there are lots of bad things that happen to Christians who are obeying in lots of ways. There's a lot of hard, hard parts to this life. This is the work of sanctification that God is going on. But he goes on and he says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And with regard to God keeping us, he says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he didn't tell you to do a thing. So if the point is that nothing can separate us from the love of God, how can we be left assuming that something can? There there are people who turn to this passage and they'll say, well, the one thing it doesn't say here is it says that I, I could separate myself from the love of Christ. Well, if that isn't the most demotivating interpretation of all of Scripture... Because if I can separate myself from the love of God you know, in an eternal way, <laughs> I don't know how many times a day I do that, right? It, it, this is a classic objection, that our own personal decision is, a, is an internal thing, unlike the list of the external threats. But these external threats are the very temptations by which men are led internally to fall away. If an internal decision to abandon Christ was the thing that would cause me to lose my salvation, what comfort could this passage possibly be? Because it's not true. God saved you from yourself first. He didn't save you from all the external things first. He saved you from yourself first. And he continues to do so all the way to the end. So let's apply this to your doubts and to your dark times. There are times we find our lives in our lives, and that our lives, we are, we are walking in darkness. While there were times of sweet communion with Christ, there is now some temporary depression of spirit that seems to overwhelm you, or some heavy personal trial that threatens to last forever. But if it is true that all things are working for good, here, here's the good news. Now, when I prayed, the, when I prayed before I, we started, I said, I prayed that God would discipline us, including our emotions. Um, I could give a whole sermon on that. People think that their emotions can't be disciplined or they wouldn't be emotions. Your feelings can't be disciplined. But you are to discipline your emotions with the Word of God. You are to discipline your emotions. And so here's, here's the good news. If it is true that all things are working for good, then it is true whether you believe it in the moment or not. Why is that good news? Because it doesn't it's, it's not up to you. Isn't it good news that your salvation and sanctification isn't up to you? All, Christian, all things are going to work together for good. You can believe it or not. 
And you can believe it or not, in every moment, I'm, I'm so aware at certain times where I, I consciously, the thought will go through my mind, I don't believe Romans 8, 28 right now, not in this situation, I don't. And God says, Hatcher, tough. Go ahead, don't believe it. I'm still going to work it for good. Might be a little more bumpy, but I'm going I'm to make it work for good. God works all things out for good to those who love him. Not, not God works out all things for good to those who believe it, but not to those who don't. No, that's what he's doing. And if it's true that the testing of your faith produces patience that will make you complete. You know that the wonderful passage in James? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. <laughs> yeah. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. It does not say that, you will be, that patience will have its perfect work and you will be made perfect and complete, lacking nothing, but only if you're joyful. It's not up to you. It's, it's actually an invitation. It is a command. Count it all joy. You go into temptations, count it all joy. But it's more than a command. Well, there I go again. I'm not counting it all joy. I'm, I'm going to now have to confess that sin too. Yes, you will. Yes, you do. But it's more of an invitation. Here's what I want you to believe, Christian. You're about to walk into this trial. You're in the midst of this trial. I want you to count it all joy because I'm at work in you. I'm at work in this. But I can't see the end. I can't see where this is going. Well, if it is true that the testing of your faith produces patience that will make you complete, then it is true whether you believe it in the moment or not. That's good news. Repent of, ba of balancing your faith on your feelings and your hope only in what you can see. Hebrews 11, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is not, faith is not trusting in things which you can see. What kind of faith is that? Faith is trusting in the things that you can't see. But you believe them because God has declared them. And this is why I believe it's appropriate. It's been appropriate in the church for centuries. It goes actually all the way back to um, the Levitical system of, of meeting in synagogues. And that is at the end of a service, a pastor in the name of God will place a benediction, God's name, a good word upon his people as they go. What you've heard, now go and live according to. Now receive. Receive by faith and trust. In a benediction, God, by means of his minister, places his name, not the minister's name, Christ's name, upon his people as they leave the assembly and go out to their various callings, go out to the, all of the different things that are going to happen this week. Having been dealt with the word by his, having been dealt by his word, and having feasted at his table, we are sent into the world with a grace that, in the midst of whatever sufferings, will, as he says in 1 Peter 5, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle us. It is to place each of us in the hands of him who, as Jude writes, is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. How can these ministers say such things? How can these apostles write such things? Because they believe, Philippians 1.6. 
because they're confident in God. They're not confident in the congregation. They're not confident. So I, I have to tell you this. I'm not confident in you. Not a single one of you. I'm confident in God. I'm so confident in God that he is at work in each one of you, in each one of us. That he is going to complete the good work that he began. And so here's the good news. You, have to be, you don't have to be confident in you either. You just, you just fall upon the grace of God again and again and again and again. May he strengthen your confidence in his strong gospel. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, confirm this word in the hearts of these people. To those who have only been playing around the edges of this strong gospel, overwhelm them now by your grace and bring them into the confidence that you call us to. To those who need to know that you will uphold them, show them even now that you are and strengthen their confidence in you. You're with them. For those who flatter themselves, break them of this evil and grant them repentance to trust only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We pray you do this all to the glory of your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.